Hey, I think it's me. I think we're doing Q&R now. Or not Q&R, roundtable. 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 So this is a time in our service when we kind of uh, have a warm up for the uh, message coming in a few minutes. So just a couple things to note. I forgot to mention this last time. If you respond um, and you're okay with your voice being on the podcast that we post um, for public access, if you can just in the chat, just let us know if it's okay for us to do that. And if you don't, it, it is an opt in, not an opt out. So if you don't say anything, we will just exclude your voice with no judgment. I get that's not a thing everybody wants out there. So you are free to share and to respond to this uh, prompt that we're going to discuss in a moment here. And I think that's, that's all. And then also, if, if you think of something, but you kind of take a little longer to process your thoughts, you're also welcome to share uh, with us in the Q&R that we have at the end of the service, where we kind of toss around different ideas related to the sermon as well. So the question for this week, and if there is a slide that can go up right now as well, but the question is, when have you done something with good intentions, only for it to backfire on you? How did you feel? And when I heard that question this morning, I could think of like really wide gamut of things that um, I could answer this with. I thought of things that are kind of like uh, a little light, more lighthearted and um, maybe non-consequential. Like when our kids were little, we had this one toy and it was a toy that was like this dump truck that had these dominoes and it was noisy and loud and it was like it would drop the dominoes and then you know you would, and it would make this random pattern and then you could flick a domino and have that happen the problem was none of the children played with it save maybe once and there ended up just being dominoes all over the floor all the time and i got kind of sick of cleaning up dominoes that nobody was actually playing with. And so one day, the kids were probably off at Nana and Papa's or Grandma's and Grandpa's to give me a little break. And I just went, I'm going to get rid of that toy. Nobody really plays with it. It just kicks around and makes a mess. I, no one's going to miss it. And nobody did for a really long time until one day somebody said, did we have a truck that used to like do that? And these are little kids, little tiny kinder that are like asking about this toy. And I was like, oh, um, I got rid of it because nobody was playing with it. And, you know, and it was like, they were horrified that I would get rid of something that they didn't play with, but was still somehow precious to their young hearts. And how did I feel? Mostly irritated about that. Let's like, honestly, um, I didn't feel too much sorrow about it, but I regret that I have never been able to live that down in our family. And it is still brought up regularly, family gatherings, Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving. I have to relive my sins as a mother. Um, and then I can think of more serious things like different beliefs that I had and, and beliefs that I internalized that were meant to be there for good intentions, but really backfired. Like this idea that certainty of who's in and who's out and, and you know, how you kind of 
make that part of your world and it's supposed to keep everything orderly and safe and make people feel like they're doing the right thing and it never really produced that and and um so i think of things like that i think of parenting books that i had when the kids were young that i look back on them now and rather than creating secure attachment they actually create created like distance and harm and things that actually at this stage of our lives we are working to repair in our family and so i have felt regret and i have felt loss for things i wouldn't allow myself to enjoy when my kids were little babies because i was worried about wrecking them for life and all the fear that i felt around that so that question really has um a lot of possibilities in that for you so if something sparks whether it's <laughs> outing yourself as a bad mom who got rid of a toy or uh, a theological concept philosophical concept that you recognize um caused more harm than good uh, we invite you to share that with with the group here we've got a couple minutes um just feel free to unmute yourself um or for the people that are here live at our place feel free to kick me out of the chair and come and share here and um we'd love to hear from you I think about how little kids often do that too, right? Like little kids would be like, oh, mommy, I did this thing for you. I wash the counters with Vaseline like you do all the time. And you're like, ha ha, thank you, but no. Uh, Kevin, Kevin, go ahead. So it's actually me who's gonna share. Kind of, kind of about Kevin, actually. <laughs> um, there's been a few times in our life as a family especially when our kids were younger, that um, we've taken people into our homes who've required just a family situation, something to keep them safe, help them with their you know, addiction issues, loss of employment, whatever. And yeah, our intention was always towards the good, we believed. And like Jeff was saying, you know, you bend over backwards for people, you do everything you know to do to serve them in love and kindness. And just think of all the conversations we had with our kids about being willing to lay down their life for someone and have grace for people. And we'd have these big discussions about how everyone's on a journey. And, you know, oh, we look back now and see that many times it was at the expense of our children, um, sometimes even their safety. And we were quite quite naive and idealistic. And um, it's only now that our kids are older that they've shared a few stories with us. And we realized not only did the intention often backfire for the person we were trying to help, um, but it also backfired in terms of what our children went through and even what we went through in terms of just overall frustration and, and beating ourselves up, thinking what's wrong with us? Why can't we love this person better? Why isn't this helping? Um, so I know that's a broader topic, but it's really interesting how we really can, with the best of intentions, especially trying to be good Christians, um, reach out and do these things, maybe only because there's a need there. And so we need jerk thinking, well, we better do something because we're the ones who are seeing this, when um, I think we can do a lot more in terms of just trusting that uh, we know when the time is for us and we know when the time isn't for us and and just being okay about that, but also being aware about the people around us and the ripple effect our good intentions have.
Thankfully, I think there's still been a net positive in those situations, <laughs> you know, uh, still have good relationship with those people and they, uh -huh. they're always thankful for what we did. And, you know, kids learn through adversity too. So, <laughs> so there's that, but yeah, we could have done it better. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. I think you really are pointing on uh, a really important thing about like, I think sometimes the paradigms we were in were like intentions is all that matters. Mm -hmm. And so then we end up silencing hurt and things like that because we're like, yeah, but my intentions were good. And it's being able to hold both those things. I really appreciate you sharing that. That is it's powerful and important. Just before we close, I wanted to share too, there was uh, something in the comments, uh, someone was sharing about how they sold a tent trailer so that they could have funds to build a deck. And because they weren't really using the, the tent trailer anywhere, family camping trips weren't really happening. And, and their youngest was like, oh, wasn't finished camping yet. And they didn't find that up until years later. And you feel crappy as a parent. And yeah, I get that. And also uh, same person said they tried to be helpful when they were a kid, washing their parents' car with steel wool. So, Maybe we've all had those moments <laughs> where we have had really good intentions and it doesn't always work out. Self-forgiveness, friends, it's the way forward. But I'm gonna, um, unless the, we have, could do one more and if not, we'll pass it off to uh, the next segment of the service here. So we're gonna hand it off. No, it's too late. <laughs> oh no, there's it. Um, have some cereal. Yeah. First of all, we want to say that we love joining you on a Sunday from Wales. Wales. Uh, from Wales. Wow. Zoom has allowed us you at the bridge to make full more room for each, everybody at your table, and uh, we're amongst those who are really grateful for this. Um. I've been joining some of you uh, in reading Sarah Bessie's book, Out of Sorts, and uh, can relate to her when she says, there is room for us all. There is room for you and me. Maybe I believe this because I'm gratefully disillusioned about church. Maybe it's because I'm pretty convinced, like we've been hearing, that most of us are doing the best we can do most of the time. And maybe it's because I'm thankful for the extremes and all the points in between, because they keep us growing, keep us alive and keep us reforming. Maybe it's because I've been wrong so often. Maybe it's because I'm just a little bit tired. And maybe it's because I want to see just a little bit more kindness. Richard Raw says that before Christianity developed the safe ritual meal that we've called the Eucharist, Jesus' most consistent social action was eating in new ways with people, encountering those who were oppressed or excluded from the system. It seems that Jesus did not please everybody by breaking the rules to make a bigger table. Notice how his contemporaries accused Jesus. One side criticized him for eating with the tax collectors and sinners. The other side judged him for eating too much with the Pharisees and lawyers. Jesus ate with all sides. He ate with a leper and he received a woman with poor reputation and even invited himself to a sinner's house. How do we then not see that we are all one? 
we're all equal. And Jesus still and always eats with sinners, just as he did on earth. So whoever we are, come. Come if you have much faith. Come if you have little. You who have been here often and you who've not been here for a long time. You who've tried to follow and you who have failed. I invite you to close your eyes and imagine the table is large. Jesus is sat there with friends gathered around and he invites us to join him. First, he says, let's eat together. Next, next he takes the cup and says, let's drink together. Let's enjoy each other. Lamb of God, you who take away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. Lamb of God, you who takes away the sins of the world, grant us your peace. Not an easy peace, not an insignificant peace, not a half-hearted peace, but the peace of God in Jesus be with you and all those you encounter and include in your life this week. All right. Good morning, everyone. Sorry, I'm distracted because we have a TV in our room and it's echoing. And I'm just going to pause a moment. We're almost there. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, yeah, welcome here, everyone. I will be sharing this morning. Um, yeah, and I just wanted to say welcome and I echo what Jeff says, you know, no matter where you stand politically, no matter what beliefs you're wrestling through, um, you're welcome here. We would love to hear your thoughts and your voice. Um, yeah, and I would just like to take a moment to say thank you for everyone in the last week who has just helped me through like my computer crashing. If you guys aren't aware, last week I know we were quite late and I got here to the Lowens and I my laptop had already been acting funny and I was putting my backpack that had my laptop in it into the car on my way here and I dropped my backpack and laptop's not working anymore. So um, yeah, thanks for everyone just with support as I figure that out. But yeah, I'm Taryn. I haven't actually introduced myself. I use she, her pronouns. Um, and I am gonna be reading from this book here that we're going through, A Woman's Lectionary for the Whole Church by Wilda C. Gaffney. And there are four passages that are offered for each week, and I'm going to be pulling from all four. So I would just like to take a few minutes to read through them so that you guys are familiar with them, especially because um, this is a unique translation. That's the author's translation. So that way you'll be familiar with that. And the way that I kind of typically approach reading the Bible and reading scripture is to take note of things that stand out to me. 
So as I read, if a phrase or a word or a concept stands out to you, I invite you to put that in the chat um, just so I can know what's standing out to you. And maybe it's the same thing, maybe it's a different thing, but I will start reading once I get to the correct page. Okay, so first, our first passage is from 1 Kings 17, 17 to 24. Um, and I invite you to close your eyes as I read so you can focus because I don't have it up on the screen. But if there's something you wanna comment in the chat of sticking out to you, feel free to open up your eyes to type. So 1 Kings 17. And this is a continuation of a passage that Eden read from last week. After the miracle, multiplying the meal and oil, the child of the woman, the owner of the house, became ill. And his illness was so overwhelming that there was no breath left in the child. And she said to Elijah, what is between me and thee, man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my child. Then he said to her, give me your child. And he took the child from her bosom and carried the child up into the room upstairs where he, Elijah, was staying and laid the child on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Holy One of God, Holy One, my God, have you actually wrought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her child? And Elijah stretched himself upon the child three times and cried out to the Most High, Holy One, my God, let this child's soul come into him again. And the Most High God listened to the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. Then Elijah took and brought the child down from the house's upstairs room, and gave the child to the mother, and said, Look, your child lives. So the woman said to Elijah, Now this I know, you are a man of God, and that the word of the Holy One of God is in, uh, in your mouth is truth. Next, we'll read a part of Psalm 116. One thing to note, um, this author in the Psalms has chosen to use feminine pronouns for God. Um, so that might be different from what you're used to, but that's what's happening here. So Psalm 116, 1 to 9. I love the God who saves because she has heard my cry, my cry and my supplications. Because she inclined her ear to me, I will continue to call all my days. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol found me. I found distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of she who is life. Fount of life, pray, save my life. Gracious is the saving God and righteous our God mother loves deeply. Return my soul to your rest for she who is faithful has rewarded you abundantly. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the living God in the land of the living. Once again, if anything is sticking out to you at any point, feel free to put that in the chat. Next up, we'll be reading Acts 9 verses 36 to 42. It reads, now in Joppa, there was a disciple whose name was Tabitha. 
which translated into Greek is Dorcas. She was abundant in good works and benevolent giving. And it happened at the time she became ill and died and they washed her and laid her in a room upstairs. Now Lydda was near Joppa. So the disciples who heard that Peter was there sent two people to him urging, without delay, come to us. Then Peter got up and went with them. When he arrived, they took him to the room upstairs and standing beside him were all the widows weeping and displaying the tunics and other clothing that Dorcas made while she was with them. Then Peter put all of them outside and got on his knees and prayed. And he turned to the body and said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and raised her up and calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. Now this became known throughout Joppa and many believed in the Messiah. And finally, Luke 7, 11 to 17. The day after healing a centurion slave, Jesus went to a, count, a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. He had just approached the gate of the town and suddenly being carried out was a man who had died, his mother's only son, and she was a widow. With her was a large crowd from the town. When the Messiah saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then Jesus came forward and touched the coffin and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, rise. The dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized all of them and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us and God visited God's people. This word about Jesus spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding country. So if there's anything that sticks out to you, you can put that in the chat there. Um, <clears throat> when I first read these passages, what stood out to me was, wow, these all kind of have to do with life and death and being raised from death back to life. And there's definitely a common theme there. And I was like, what? what am I supposed to do with that? That seems so intimidating. Um, and I did what anyone who was a recent Bible college grad who took two semesters of Greek did. And specifically with Acts and Luke, I just started looking up the Greek words because that's my comfort zone. I'm a bit of a nerd like that. <laughs> but I would just like to share a little list of what stuck out to me within those passages. So I'm gonna start with Psalm 116. Um, and just a couple observations from each. So it really, the phrase, she who is life in describing God stood out to, stood out to me and the descriptor of living God. Um, and just the idea of like, God is life and the source of life. And I could really go on a little tangent, but I'll just leave that at those observations. In the first Kings passage, so the one with, um, the woman whose child passed with Elijah. What stood out to me is that it happened in the upper room. I just took note of that. Um, it's interesting to me that the way that the healing occurred was that Elijah cries out to God um, and then stretched himself upon the child three times. 
is what it says. Um, but also it stood out to me that the mother here is a widow and it's her only son. Moving on to Axe. Um, one thing that's really cool that I'm just like, I can't not point this out. Um, Tabitha, right? That's her name. Yes. She's a woman. She's also described as a disciple. I wrote a lot in a paper on that, so I, I can't not mention that. Um, <laughs> I just got a few snaps, so thank you, crowd. <laughs> um, moving on, because once again, that's not a focus, but I could go on a long tangent on that. Um, they note that they have washed the dead body in Acts. So this person is truly dead. It's just a little note of, you know, not just they were sick, they, they were dead. Once again, it happens in the upper room that they're healed. I did a little research on this and I couldn't really find a good explanation. So if anyone in like Q&R after this is like, here's a good reason why both first Kings and Acts happened in the upper room where the person came back to life, let me know. I'm just curious about that. Um, once again, in Acts, we see that Peter prays to God and then commands Tabitha to come back to life. But what really stood out to me in Acts is that it says the widows gathered and it's the widows who's mourning uh, Tabitha's death. And finally, Luke 7, some of the observations I made. Jesus, in this case, commands the healing. In 1 Kings and Acts, Elijah and Peter kind of pray to God and then heal. But in this case, it's just Jesus healing. Um, second, it's right after the centurion's slave is healed, which is just significant to me because the centurion is a Roman and not an Israelite. Once again, something I can go on a long tangent, but you see Jesus healing people who aren't Israelites. So I think that's cool. Um, this is a fun Greek word for you. I can't not include a Greek word. Um, Jesus had compassion when he saw um, the, the dead body and all that. And the Greek word for that is splanknon, which literally means guts. So I just think it's cool when you see like in the New Testament, people having compassion on someone. It's actually saying like they're feeling this in their intestines because the Jewish understanding at the time was that uh, like that was the core and the source of emotions. So the way that we would say heart symbolically now, it was guts back then. Just a fun fact for you today. Um, but finally, once again, in Luke 7, what really sticks out to me is that this woman is a widow. So it's her son that's being brought back to life. And you'll notice widows are often included in these stories. Um, and there's two layers that I really would like to focus on today. So the first layer here is just what's the immediate result of these healings, these miracles, whatever you want to call them. So let's take a look at what um, the three passages, this kind of doesn't include the Psalms, but let's take a look. So in 1 Kings, it says, um, after the woman's son is brought back to life, it says, so the woman said to Elijah, now this I know, you are a man of God, and that the word of the Holy One of old in your mouth is true. So we see that the result of this miracle is that God is kind of glorified in a sense. Um, 
God is seen to be real and it's, it's attested to God, um, which is really important. Basically, like you're a prophet and your God seems legit. In Acts 9, there's a similar response in that after Tabitha is brought back to life, it says, now this became known throughout Joppa and many believed in the Messiah. So Peter was healing, you know, in the name of Jesus kind of thing. Um, and it attested that this Jesus thing that people are hearing about and going around, he might be the Messiah. And a lot of people believed. Finally, in Luke 7, it reads that fear seized all of them and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us, that being Jesus, and God visited God's people. This word about Jesus spread throughout Judea and all of the surrounding country. So when I read this kind of at the first level here, at what are the results of these miracles? I see that the actions of God's people brought glory to God. It helped to attest of God's power. It helped to attest of what God is capable of, which is defeating death. Um, obviously, there's a lot that you can connect to Jesus's resurrection and the importance of that as Christians. Um, but we aren't going to go there today. For today, we're just going to look at the immediate results of these miracles. Um, so I think that's important that people are glorifying God, that good things are happening. And they're saying, God is good. This is a miracle. We like that dead people are now alive. Um, and there's a part of me that's like, that's great. Yeah, let's celebrate that. Let's glorify God. But there's also the other part of me, kind of like when you look at your intentions and it might turn out good and you're like cool my good intentions paid off there's something about that that makes me uncomfortable and that's just a lot of my own wrestling of like why are good things accredited to god and why are not good things not necessarily accredited to god but sometimes there are we won't get too deep into that anyways but i noticed there was some uncomfortableness with me internally as i kind of observed that people are glorifying god which I agree with it's a good thing but I was curious about why I'm slightly uncomfortable about, about that so I kind of took another layer to these passages and this is kind of the deeper layer of how did the people involved in this story relate basically how did these miracles affect the people's lives whom they bettered um so once again as we've noted in all three of these passages, widows are involved. And maybe you know something about widows in Jesus's time and he Hebraic time and whatnot, and maybe you don't. So I'll just share a little bit of knowledge. Um, widows, basically in that kind of patriarchal structure, a woman is born, she is her father's daughter kind of like property. And then when she gets married, she gets passed off to her husband. Um, if your husband dies, therefore you're now a widow, you kind of transfer back to if you have a son or a brother or a male relative. Um, in these cases, they're widows, so they don't have that husband to, in a sense, 
protect them and take care of them within that culture's context. So then they are now dependent on their sons. And in these cases, you see that it's a widow's son who is dying in both First Kings and in Luke. Um, and in Acts 9, widows are incorporated in that it seems like she had been, Tabitha had been taking care of widows because they gathered around her as she passed to mourn and say, look at the clothes that she provided and whatnot. So she'd been taking care of widows. What I'd like you to note is a widow is a vulnerable person in that there's not the immediate normal sense of a husband to take care of her. Um, if all of a sudden they have no male relatives to rely on, they often just become beggars in the street who have to plead for money, for food, for whatever. Um, and it's not exactly <laughs> ideal. Um, but ultimately what I want to point out is if you're a widow, you're kind of abandoned and vulnerable. Um, and I think that's really, really important as we look at these stories. Especially when we look at Luke 7, I'll just zone in on that one where Jesus heals the son of the widow. And it says that Jesus had compassion. So I think Jesus looked and saw the widow's vulnerability, saw that she would be left with nothing, that she would just have to figure out how to exist with no one there to help or support her. And he had compassion on that. He saw the pain in her future and chose to bring her son back to life. Did that help her help the son? Absolutely. We can celebrate that. But I think we need to take it a step further and look at who else is being benefited by this miracle of Jesus. And he not only saves the son's life, but he kind of saves the mom's life too, in a sense. Um, what I really would like to say here is, yeah, miracles can attest to God's power. They certainly do. And that is a good thing and is worth praising God because I really do truly believe that God is good, that God is faithful and worth praising. But we don't just see miracles revealing God's power. We also see miracles revealing God's heart. And that is that God cares for the vulnerable. Um, I would like to insert a little bit of my personal story here in that. Um, so I was in Bible college, technically on my degree, technically interning with the bridge right now to finish my degree, but I celebrated graduation. Anyways, we don't know. I'm a weird half student. So um, about a year ago, first semester of my fourth year, so like fall 2020, I was in a class called Theology of Mission. And in this class, so my minor for my studies was intercultural studies. So a lot of people who major in intercultural studies need to go and do an eight month internship in some sort of different culture than what they're used to. So often that looks like going to a different country and a different cultural context there. Sometimes that looks like going to an inner city location or um, an indigenous reserve or whatever, if they aren't indigenous, stuff like that. Um, and this class that I was in was geared towards helping people process um, 
what they understood about mission in light of that experience, except for I was in that class because COVID hit and they didn't want me to do an intercultural studies practicum. So I just needed to take another class. But I started to really, really wrestle with what is this understanding of mission? And we talked a lot about the good news and this ties into what Eden shared last week of what kind of gospel did you grow up hearing um, and what kind of gospel you're comfortable sharing now? That was the round table question. Um, and I actually, with my laptop cracking out last week, I didn't end up like tuning into the service and I watched on Facebook a couple days later, just the video that's posted. And I realized, oh, Eden shared on Luke 4, and that's kind of been super important to me. And I was one week away from getting to share on a passage that I've already been reading a lot. Oh, that would have been so much easier. But that's okay. Here we are now. Um, what I'm trying to get at is about a year and a few months ago, I really started to question, what is the good news? And I realized I didn't know. <laughs> And that was really hard because I'm a Christian and you're supposed to share the good news. Um, and then I really just started to kind of have bigger questions and a lot of processing. And that, that really was the beginning point of a bigger journey. Um, fast forward to last July, early July, I go to Aldergrove Park. I took a day off of work and I was like, I'm still wrestling with so much of, of God and spirituality, spirituality and the church. And I just remembered at one point, a prophet said, take a look at Luke four, because that's where Jesus says what he came to do. And we looked at that last week. And I would like to read that um, in this translation, just a little, little couple verses of that. And it's from Luke four. 18 to 19. And this is Jesus quoting a passage in Isaiah. And it says, the spirit of the most high is upon me because God has anointed me to proclaim good news to those who are poor. God has sent me to preach liberation to those who are captives and recovery of sight to those who are blind, to liberate those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the most high's favor. And Back in July, I read that. And oh, I don't want to get it wrong now after just reading it. But I wrote on my hand, I said, I wrote the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. I had that on my hand and it stayed there for a couple days. Hopefully it was just strong ink. I think I wash my hands frequently enough, but it stayed there for a few days. And I would read it, the poor, the blind, the captive, and the oppressed, or whatever order. And that's kind of been ingrained in me. Um, fast forward to just a few weeks ago and I had a friend who was asking some big questions and wrestling through faith and trying to process theology and all those big things. Um, and I ended up just encouraging her saying like, I understand that Jesus came here for the poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed, basically the, the people in the margins pushed to the side um, vulnerable, not always seen to be taken care of. And I just kind of said to her a few times over and over again, like, no, Jesus came here for the poor, the blind, the captive, and the oppressed. 
um, and she knew my kind of like backstory of trying to figure out what the kid news was and that I'd been wrestling with that for a while. Um, and a little bit later, she kind of remarked and was like, I think that's your good news. I think that's your gospel. Um, and so that's just a little look at this specifically in the last, you know, year and a half of my life. Um, but I really do believe that Jesus is good news. We can add widows into that category, but for the people who are cast aside, I see Jesus not only seeing them, but actively trying to improve their situation. Um, so ultimately, when you look at this passage, you can go back to that first level and that God is glorified. And I think it's really cool to acknowledge that, you know, God is using the widow to be at work and reveal God's glory. If we're looking at that first layer in which the immediate result of these miracles is that God is glorified. We can see that God is including the outcasts within their story, that God cares about them. But when we go to that second level, we see that God not only uses the vulnerable to reveal their power, but God cares and loves the vulnerable as well. And that might be my bias because that's what I understand the gospel to be at this point in my life. Um, but I really do see that throughout all four of these passages, throughout the understanding of life and death and the tension between there. I see God saying that he doesn't just want us to live life, but to have it abundantly in the sense, like I think that's a, a passage somewhere. Anyways. Um, <laughs> But this idea that God really cares about us, um, that God wants us to be able to live not being oppressed, not being cast to the side. And I see Jesus, in a sense, seeing the flaws in the system and those who are kind of falling between the cracks and trying to reach out and take care of them. And... I see that action of Jesus reflected through Peter and Elijah and whoever wrote this psalm praising God for being the God of life. So that's what I see throughout my observation in these passages. I hope I could just say, or I wish I could just say, this is what I see. You need to see it too. But I'm really understanding that I can't. I can't say, look, you need to think what I think. So instead, I would like to conclude kind of with the idea of how Nathan said a couple of weeks ago, you know, you can't just now wrap it up with a bow on top. Um, you need to sit in the tension and wrestle and question and figure out how you feel about things. So I would kind of like to go back to an idea that was around the round table question and just challenge you with this. And I have this question on a slide. Um, what is your motivation behind an action? And I kind of see this in the two layers that I presented. There's the immediate results, which in these stories is that God was glorified and that's a good thing. Um, that, that in and of itself is sufficient, but there's more happening. Um, and we kind of, I would say, see that Jesus is motivated to 
act for justice for the oppressed or take care of those who are now vulnerable um, when you look at that second layer. And I think Jesus's desire to help those who have maybe been lost within a system or within society in the sense of forgotten and cast aside, um, I think I see that as a motivation in who Jesus heals, or at the very least, I know Jesus did a lot of miracles. It says that not all of them are recorded, but at the very least, these ones that are being presented and shared, I see that it's showing that Jesus cares and is motivated to take care of the outcast and the forgotten or whatever label you wanna use. So I would just like to challenge you. I think it's a good question to ask yourself. And I had a close friend kind of challenge me on this, um, gosh, almost a year ago now, um, in a certain situation of just, what is your motivation for that action? Um, yeah, so I'll leave you with that. As Karina kind of said in the round table, yeah, you need to wrestle with that tension of you had good intentions, but sometimes there's hurt. And I think if we want to live like Jesus, I think that's a desire of many people. We need to ask ourselves this question of why are we trying to do this so-called good deed with good intentions? Um, it's not easy. We like black and white. Um, this is a little harder. I also think it's good to have self-awareness. So this is maybe something for Q&R. Um, but yeah, I, my phone just turned off. Let me find my kind of concluding point here again. Um, yeah, so we don't just see God's power, Jesus's power through miracles. We also see God's heart and God's heart is often for those who have been cast aside or at the very least, God really, really cares about those people. Um, yeah, so you can wrestle with that kind of concluding thought that I'm getting from these passages, or you can ask yourself, what's, what's my motivation for a certain action? Um, yeah, that's kind of everything I had to share today.